Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and a state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, July 6th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, find out how the biggest tax cuts in Mississippi history will affect you and affect state revenue. A new law hopes to curb welfare fraud, but will it save taxpayers money? In our book club, the story of a Mississippi newspaper owner, a woman who advocated for voters' rights for African Americans during the civil rights era. And summertime means more skin is exposed to the sun's rays, and that could prove dangerous for children and adults alike. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The state has just entered the first phase of a massive tax reduction plan. Three sources of revenue are affected, individual and corporate income tax, self-employment tax, and the franchise tax. By eliminating the 3% income tax bracket and the corporate franchise tax, and by offsetting a federal self-employment tax, the state will eventually cut $415 million in annual revenue. The reductions in each area will be phased in over varying periods. Passed by the legislature during the 2016 legislative session, the 10-year process is Mississippi's largest ever tax cut. Darren Webb is the state economist. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier about the plan. There are uh, really three components to the tax cut. There is a phase out of the first bracket of the income tax, and that's for, for individuals and corporations. There is a provision of a self-employment tax deduction, and then there's the elimination of the franchise tax. So those are the three components of the, of the tax cut. The phase-out of the income tax is on the first 5000 That's for every individual Mississippian? Yes, correct. So in other words, right now, before the tax cut goes into effect, you will pay 3% tax on the first $5,000 of income, so a total of $150. And that is being phased out so that you won't have that. What can people expect in the first year then? The first $1,000 is exempt, so there's no tax on the first $1,000 of income. And then you're taxed 
3% on the remaining $4,000 that we were taxed on. And then each year it will increase. So instead of the first 1000 it's the first 2000 then the first 3000 and eventually you eliminate the tax altogether. So the self-employment, can you explain that? That's a deduction for federal self-employment tax. So the state is giving you a deduction on their, your state taxes for your federal self-employment tax that you're paying. And again, that's a phase-in, I think, of about three years. The biggest portion, you said, is the franchise tax. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, the, the franchise tax is a tax on inventory and investment in the state of Mississippi. And so this is a tax, again, that is being phased out uh, over a course of about 10 years. So uh, it is a tax on investment, and that, that's what the legislature is trying to do is eliminate that tax. Right now, the state is getting somewhere around $260 million uh, in franchise tax. So over time, that will be eliminated. Do you think that the result is going to be more revenue generated over time with new business? I think that it will generate investment. That is, people will be encouraged to invest in Mississippi by the elimination of the franchise tax. That doesn't necessarily mean that there will be so many new businesses coming in that the $260 million will be replaced by new investment. That's not necessarily going to happen. Do you anticipate the state's going to lose money? I think the net effect will be that, yeah, we will. the state coffers will be reduced by something, my guess is something less than the $415 million. So in other words, there's going to create some in- investment incentive. So there will be some people who will move to Mississippi as a result of the loss of the franchise tax. So that's offsetting, but it's not necessarily replacing all of the losses because they're still going to come in. They're going to pay corporate taxes and their people are going to pay income taxes and sales taxes and all those kinds of things. But it's not necessarily going to generate enough money to completely fill that hole. So my guess is that the net effect will be something less than $415 million. You have mentioned smaller government. Right. I think that, you know, part of the incentive or part of the, the logic behind reducing the taxes is to reduce the size of government. That's that's what the I think some of the, the leadership has said, that they were elected to reduce taxes and reduce the size of government. And I think that's part of what they're trying to accomplish with this. Ultimately, do you see it hurting state agencies? Well, it certainly does result in less revenue for state agencies, yes. I understand that part of the impetus for this was that other states do not have the franchise tax, and so they were attempting to try to equalize us with other states. And so, you know, I don't know how much how big of a barrier that has been for investment in the past, but at least it will be eliminated. And so that, well, it, it theoretically would create some incentive for new investment. But again, I don't know, I don't know how much that would be. Thank you. You're welcome. The cuts went into effect on July 1st, the start of fiscal year 2018. Kathy Waterbury is Associate Commissioner at the Department of Revenue. She tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the cuts affect some of the state's main revenue generators, income taxes. Income tax is the second largest tax in the state, provides about 44% of the general fund. It is almost equal to the sales tax is what in the amount of revenue that it provides to the state. Income tax includes both individual or personal income tax as well as the corporate income tax. We will see the effect in revenue as uh, estimate payments and withholding payments are expected to decrease because people will expect to pay less income tax next year. Also, what we will see is the first phase of the self-employment tax. We will see about 17% of the tax paid for 2017 will be deductible. So 
of the 18 million that we expect to lose in in revenue for FY18, almost 15 million of that is the income tax reduction. Are you concerned about where this is going to put your department? No. We work at the will of the policymakers of the state. This is certainly a policy decision of the legislature and you know, we will work within our means. Looking at the franchise tax, which I guess is the biggest portion of this, can you talk about uh, what that means in terms of the cuts? We won't see the that going into effect until next fiscal year. It is for calendar year 18 that taxpayers will be able to take the deduction, but they report their franchise tax on their income tax return. So we will actually not see that decrease until they file their income tax returns, which will be during fiscal year 19. When you're having a phase-in and the way that the state budgets, they're looking at the additional loss every year. So it's not based on the aggregate. So that's something to keep in mind, too. So the first year is 18, the next year it's 49, but it's the aggregate would be like, what's that, 61? Mm-hmm. So ultimately, at the end of the 10 years, it's for 415. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it just starts building that way. But the way the state's looking at it is what the additional loss will be for budgeting purposes every mm-hmm. year. Thanks now. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Waterbury says Mississippians and state businesses will likely begin seeing a reduction in their income withholdings when they file taxes next year. Coming up, a new law is changing the application process for the state's government assistant programs. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Some Mississippians who receive public assistance could face a stricter verification process this year. Effective this July 1st, the HOPE law will require the Department of Human Services to hire a third-party vendor to make sure applications meet state standards to receive aid. Supporters of the law say it will work to prevent welfare fraud. Opponents say the law won't likely reduce costs for taxpayers. Republican Representative Randy Boyd from Mantachi is a sponsor of the bill. He tells MPB's Alexis Ware the purpose of reviewing welfare fraud. What we've done in the bill that is uh, uh, we're talking about uh, is checking into that. We're trying to make sure that the people's money is spent in the proper way. So what are some of the things that will be done under the law to ensure that that happens? People are going to have to be checked out a little bit better uh, as far as, uh, you know, we have found people who are not in our state, not living in our state, who are on our Medicaid program. And we also have people who uh, are not uh, legitimate uh, uh, citizens of the United States that are on our uh, on our Medicaid program. So those are the kind of things that we need to cut out. We, you know, we're trying to help the people in Mississippi, and if people take advantage from other areas, then that knocks out some of our people and some of the benefits to our people. So will you tell me a little bit about the vendor that will have to come in and help sort through the current assistance programs? Uh, Best I can remember, 
you know, it's been a while since we've been in session. Uh, the vendor would have to be someone who would be a third party that would not be attached to anyone else uh, in the program. Uh, that way it would be an efficient audit, and it would be someone who would not likely gain by uh, anything that they recommended. So it's important that we do things like that in order to control the cost, but also to make sure that the, the money is well spent toward our constituents, toward Mississippians, and not toward people outside of our state. So what is the response when people say that by having to hire a third-party person, that that's taking more money from taxpayers that could be used for other things? Well, if we were living in a perfect world and everything in the program were working as it should, and there weren't outside people trying to take advantage of our program, that might be the case. But we have already discovered people who live outside our state and who are illegal aliens who have been um, benefiting from our program. So I think we're going to probably find um, that this is not a costly measure. It's going to be one that is uh, going to help us in the long run. What we're doing is not trying to kick people off Medicare. We just want the people who deserve the benefit to get as as many of the benefits as possible. We're not trying to make make sure that we cut the rolls, but if we have people who are fraudulently on our Medicaid rolls, we need to know who those people are and get them off. We want everyone that is qualified to partake of Medicaid. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. Have a good one. Legislators who support the law say it will help to move more Mississippians from welfare to work. Coming up, a conversation with Mississippi author Jeffrey Howell in our book club. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. In today's book club, it's the story of how one woman and her newspaper defied the white status quo and won a Pulitzer Prize. Hazel Brannon-Smith was a prominent white newspaper owner in Mississippi before, during, and after the Civil Rights Movement. As early as the mid-1940s, she earned state and national headlines by fighting bootleggers and corrupt politicians. Her views of Jim Crow segregation changed during her career, setting her life on a new trajectory. Native Mississippi author Jeffrey Howell brings Smith's biography to life in the book Hazel Brandon Smith, The Female Crusading Scalawag. He tells us how Smith's life was different. She was born in 1914 in Alabama, so she grew up in the heart of the Jim Crow era and grew up with the same racist attitudes that most of her peers had. And she wrote editorials in the 1940s castigating Roosevelt and Truman for their move towards civil rights and made all kinds of commentary and and editorials where she basically dismissed African-Americans as being equal with whites and saying that, you know, social equality was not on the table. Now, that's a very staunch position. And for her to do a 180 on that, what prompted her to change her mind? Well, Her philosophy from the very beginning in the middle of the Depression was that a newspaper was to promote the community health, and she also was a rock-solid believer in freedom of speech. And when the Citizens Council was formed 
and began to economically intimidate African Americans, and you began to have all kinds of episodes. I mean, they'd been going on before, but really in the 50s, she for the first time really noted how blacks were being mistreated by sheriffs and others. She wrote an editorial where she said, I am for our Southern traditions, but not at the cost of truth. She began to criticize mildly the the strategy of massive resistance in 1954-55, and her white peers turned to her and said, you need to be quiet, and she had never been quiet about anything, and she said, you don't tell me what to write, and so she just began to write editorials that criticized the white establishment of Lexington, Durant, and and Mississippi, for that matter, the governor and, and the legislature. And the white establishment turned on her, and as time went on, she began to see her fight for freedom of speech and civil liberties in the same vein as the civil rights movement. Was she threatened in any way, physically threatened? Um, Well, a highway patrolman friend told her in the early 1960s to not drive country roads at night. Bill Miner, her, her friend, said several times if she had been a man, she probably would have been lynched. So being a woman sort of protected her. But at the same time, by the time it becomes clear that uh, African-Americans were gaining civil rights, the Klan put her on a hit list. Someone called her home in 1966 and threatened to kill her. She wrote an editorial where she basically said, I will shoot you dead if you threaten me and my husband and come on our property. So she, you know, she was very brave. Somebody threw an explosive device into her newspaper in Jackson, the Northside Reporter, and an arsonist tried to burn down her newspaper, the Lexington Advertiser, in 1967. So, yeah, she was threatened either through property damage or personal harm several times. When did the threat stop? Probably in 1967 when African-Americans began to gain the vote. The Justice Department stepped into Holmes County and began to put pressure on Holmes County to stop the uh, voter fraud and the voter intimidation. And Robert Clark was elected as the first African-American to sit in the Mississippi legislature since the 1890s. Things quieted down, and blacks began to lead a boycott against white merchants in Lexington. And one of their requirements for the boycott to end was for the boycott of her papers to stop. Now, whites in Holmes County never forgave her. Many of them never forgave her, but the threats of violence and things like that quieted down, I would say, by 1968, 69, 70. Did she stay there? Yes, that's what makes her unique among many Mississippians that stood up for civil rights, Mississippi editors that was, because Hiding Carter had died by 1972. Others had left the state just because they got tired of the pressure tactics against them. She she actually stayed in business until 1985, but she never really recovered from the economic boycott through the late 50s and 60s. Also, you had more news outlets by that time. You had a radio station at one time. You had two rival newspapers, one in Durant, one in Lexington. And so her circulation numbers never increased, and she was just increasingly in debt as the 70s progressed into the 80s. And finally, her papers were foreclosed. Her property was foreclosed on. Her husband had died in 1982, and she was slipping into dementia. So her whole newspaper empire which was colossal in the 1950s, was in ruins by the early 80s. Hazel Brandon-Smith, The Female Crusading Scalawag by Jeffrey B. Howell. Jeffrey, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you very much.
Coming up, slather on some sunscreen before heading out this summer. A survivor of skin cancer tells her story. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio, we appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition. Skin care during summer is a regular concern in the hot, humid Mississippi weather. Yet experts say it's important to wear sunscreen year-round, even during winter months. With summer vacations in full swing, Dr. Rick DeShazo has advice on staying safe. The professor of medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson tells MPB's Alexis Ware Mississippians should be concerned about skin cancer. We get a lot of direct sun that is very damaging to the skin and has some long-term complications. So is this for all people, whether they're fair-skinned or dark complexion? People with dark complexion tend to have less sun burning, but we still see melanoma in that population and the other types of skin cancer. So what are the best practices for people when they are going outside? Well, the best practices are to avoid direct skin contact. Some people have to work outside, and so we recommend that people wear uh, broad-brimmed hats. These are available for men and women to uh, screen uh, to, and to protect their ears and face and neck, which are frequently damaged by the sun. If they can tolerate it, to wear long sleeve cotton shirts and lightweight long pants and shoes and socks. Now, if that is not tolerable, then the frequent application of a 30 or higher sunscreen uh, is very important, and it's important that it be applied every two or three hours when you're in direct sun because it wears out and is sweated off. So it has to be repeated. And if you're swimming, there's no such thing as a waterproof sunscreen. You also have to reapply the sunscreen, and the directions are on the particular product that you may have bought. Is there a different effect of the sun on older people versus young people? The effects of the sun are cumulative. That is, they accumulate over years to end up in sun damage. Those individuals who are at highest risk for skin cancer are people who have had blistering sunburns as children. They are at much higher risk for melanoma and some other skin cancers than the average person. And that's why it's so important that infants, toddlers, and young children be carefully sunscreened when they're out in the sun. Dr. Jessica Lilly is a pediatric endocrinologist in Tupelo and a supervisor of skin cancer. She tells MPB's Alexis Ware how she found out she had melanoma. My um, grandmother had melanoma, and so we were really careful about watching moles and making sure they didn't change. And so I actually um, had a mole on my chest that had been there for as long as I can remember. Fortunately, mine was in a place that I could see. So, you know, when I saw the mole start to get a little bit wider and a little bit more heterogeneous in its appearance, instead of being all one color, I saw, you know, it was kind of mottled. And so all those, you know, A, B, C, D, E's that they talk about, so it was asymmetric. The border was irregular. C is color. The color wasn't right. B, the diameter was a little bit wider than the size of a pencil eraser. And then E was evolution. It was changing. And so I noticed all of those things just very subtly. And it took a long time to get a doctor's appointment and to get back to see somebody. And 
but I just had a gut feeling that I needed to, you know, really be aggressive with getting that mold checked out. And so I did the biopsy in the office, got a call two days later that I had an in-situ melanoma, which means that it hadn't spread outside the top layer of the skin, thank goodness. Before you saw this mole and before you were diagnosed, what were your skin practices? You know, grew up going outside a lot and, you know, not really being careful with sunscreen. And the worst thing of all is that I went to tanning beds before the prom. And, um, you know, we'd try to do the spray tans and things like that, and they wouldn't really last a week. And so that was my excuse to myself as well. You know, I don't really go outside that much. I'm inside setting all the time. This is the only time I'm really exposed to, you know, ultraviolet radiation. It should be okay. But it just because I never burned, you know, tanning beds were marketed as such when I was um, in high school and college that, you know, oh, look, you don't burn, and this is safer, and um, and that's absolutely not true. We know that every person who sets foot in a tanning bed is going to increase their risk of melanoma by 75%. And that's even with minimal use. So do you think it was the tanning bed that caused it or you think just a combination I, of childhood? And... I, I do. The melanoma was under an area that was usually closed and protected from the sun, in an area that didn't really get tan, um, except in the tanning bed. Um, and so I think that was big risk factor for me. What do you wish you knew before? If I had had accurate information before I went to the tanning bed at all, and then just being religious about sunscreen use, I think we underestimate our kind of casual sun exposure. We think that, you know, just you know, running errands, we don't have to fit on sunscreen, that we don't have to cover up from the sun, and just occasional beach trips or things like that are okay. And so um, I, I wish that I would have, you know, taken better care of my own skin and set a better example for others. Dr. Jessica Lilly, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10 o'clock, it's Season Pass. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. I'm Karen Brown. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio.